And so that resulted in us having bulletproof glass in our home, infrared cameras across the garden. And any time that I travelled with my dad, we always had two bodyguards with us in a bulletproof vehicle. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. Brought to you by three friends in three cities, New York, London and San Francisco. In this episode, Anne and Matt are talking to Lara Kinnear. Lara is an architect and urban strategist who grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Lara had an incredibly unusual childhood. She grew up under heavy police protection towards the end of Belfast's 30-year period of conflict, known as the Troubles. This was a time when car bombings, sniper attacks and violence in the streets were reported in the news almost every week. As someone who teaches urban studies, Lara had a really fascinating perspective on the hidden impact of physical barriers, the role of the built environment on our mental health and the importance of trust in governance. Here's Matt and Anna talking to Lara. Okay, so let, let's just start from the beginning. So, uh, you know, you, you had an unusual upbringing in an unusual place. Tell us a bit about your experience of growing up in Belfast during, during this time. What, what are your earliest memories of the city or at what age do we realize we live in a city? It's like around 10, 8 or 10, something like that, when you start to become aware of the environment around you. So I think growing up in Belfast, in a lot of ways, my experience of the city was really limited because of the conflict. As a teenager, then being a teenager of the peace process, I built up a better relationship with the city or I had a relationship with the city, but it was still quite limited. Did you travel into the centre and what I would consider or anyone would consider to be the centre of Belfast? So as a child, no, we, we didn't. Firstly, because it wasn't safe. If we had to go in, we would always travel by car. We'd never travel by public transport because that was seen as unsafe. There could be bombs and buses. We'd never get taxis back to our home because that was definitely unsafe because this underlying tension, no matter where you went, that someone might talk to someone else and that might end up in some trouble. And I think that, but the lack of trust, you know, played out from high-end politics down to a conversation you might have with a stranger in the street. Is there a difference in accent? You know, a bit like people from one side of London can tell you come from the other side of London. Is that the same in Belfast? Yes, definitely. There's a difference in accent. There's a difference in your name. If I was to say my name was Lara, it would immediately be judged that I was Protestant that I was from the east of the city, not from the west. So judgments weren't just made on accents. It was where you lived, what neighbourhood, what school you went to, what was your surname, never mind your Christian name. And all of those components categorised you as either Protestant or Catholic. Do you remember travelling into the centre of Belfast? Were there things that you now realise might have been unusual? Probably... It, that probably didn't happen until I was a teenager. You know, as a kid, if we went in, there would, you know, you'd get searched. As you went into shops, um, there would be these archways that you'd have to walk through. Sometimes you could walk through with your mom. Other times you'd have to walk through by yourself. There was police everywhere. And actually, you know, even before you got to the city centre, you, you were very aware of a police presence. And that has a certain impact on you as a child. You get used to seeing police around, but would have been scared of them. You know, they were the the big guys trying to keep order. Going to school, we would have army vehicles in front of us, just, you know, in the traffic. And 
you know, guns would be pointing out the back towards us and, and somehow you got used to it. But looking back now, I can see how abnormal that was. But it was what you knew as normal at the time. And so going into the city centre, you would go to one or two shops. You'd only be able to park your car in a few areas. You'd often check your car for bombs underneath it. Um, but I guess the the extent to where people parked, how many times they checked their car for bombs, how they journeyed through the city wasn't just determined by whether you were Protestant or Catholic. There were other contributing factors. And for me, one of the biggest factors was that my dad was a judge and that had another layer of complexity added upon what another child might have had um, growing up in East Belfast. It meant that because he was seen to be working for the crown, um, he was therefore supportive of the union, the idea of Northern Ireland being part of the UK. And therefore, he was a target for Republicans that wanted Northern Ireland to be part of Ireland. And so that resulted in us having bulletproof glass in our home, infrared cameras across the garden. Um, My mum would have checked our car for bombs every morning and we had security gates. And any time that I travelled with my dad, we always had two bodyguards with us in a bulletproof vehicle. For me, this was my normal. I knew it wasn't normal compared to other kids in Northern Ireland, but I had no idea the extent to it being abnormal until, of course, I grew up. And, and like grew up, left the country or just as a teenager? I guess w- becoming a teenager, but also then leaving Belfast when I was 18, looking back and realizing that the things that I'd grown t- to know as normal weren't as such. So how was the conflict playing out on the streets and how aware were you of what was happening? I was aware because of what was around my dad. I was aware because there were bombs going off in Belfast and on several occasions we would hear the shudders um, even through the bulletproof glass. And of course, you know, you had the news pumping out what was happening across the city. I think at that very early age, I... I began to realise that what you heard in the news and what was reality could sometimes be different. And I remember, you know, trying to work out in my head, why was I hearing about all these bombs in in the city that I supposedly lived in? And yet it wasn't part of my everyday. And that was because I, I was incredibly lucky to grow up in a very peaceful part of Belfast, a very beautiful part of Belfast, where everyday life could be got on with relatively normally bar, you know, the Saracens and the army pointing their guns at you. Yeah, there were these reminders everywhere of what was going on in other parts of the city and at a wider political level. But in other parts of the city where the trouble really was, where those areas of high tension and what they would call interface zones, they had the conflict affect their every minute, every day. Um, but I wasn't one of those people yet. That's what you would have heard on the news and what people outside Northern Ireland would have believed growing up in Belfast would have been like for most people. So that's called an interface zone. So that was a, that's a term that's used for an area of the city where there is an interface between Protestants and Catholics. So that's where a lot of trouble would play out. That's where you would often have some of the peace walls that are still there today. They're somewhere about 20 foot tall and the people that live either side of them 
you know, in no way do they want them to come down anytime soon. Even though there were part of the peace negotiations was to try and bring these walls down by 2023. Are they just individual walls? They they connect up, or they just they just separate small parts of you know certain streets and certain areas, and does it cut one area off from the other? There's a mixture. There's some that exist permanently and never connect either side. There are some that have gates within them. They're open during the day, um, but then shut it, you know, or shut from 6pm to 6am. And then there are others that have started to be slightly softer around the edges. They may be, perhaps they're not 20 foot tall, um, perhaps they're not made of steel, they're sometimes brick, sometimes they have green buffer zones either side of them. So people start to believe that they're part of the landscape. So there's a variation within the walls, depending on how much of an interface zone they exist in. And Peace Wall is an intentional name, right? So is there a story behind that? Well, first of all, the first Peace Wall was actually built by the people. In the late 70s, when things were getting bad, the community came out themselves and took furniture from their homes and built barriers at the end of their streets to try and protect themselves. Then the government realised that this was something that they might need to take control of and start implementing themselves and up went barbed wire as a first stage. And then it really evolved from there into what we have today. And I think it is, it's incredibly difficult to think about a time when those walls might come down, but everyone's incredibly hopeful that that day will come. I remember when I was doing some research into peace walls and you know, white lined theory and the idea of like, controlling zones in a city. I remember reading that for every year of the physical peace wall that's up in Northern Ireland, they say that it takes 10 years psychologically to come down in people's minds. And I'd really believe that because once you get used to having a physical wall to keep you safe, there's a, you know, a number of psychological aspects that take hold. And it would take a lot for those to then alter again, should those walls come down. Cities are, they're normally associated with freedom and expression. Did you ever have that experience in Belfast? No, I don't think I did because I had been almost anaesthetized to what it, what the conflict meant in the city for me growing up. And so even when the peace process came in 1993 and I was you know, a young teenager, again, you still didn't quite know what that meant because you were used to one way of living in Belfast. And that wasn't going to change overnight just because you had a peace process. And so it has been, you know, a process of unlayering what had been built up over the years. And I'm talking about, you know, this is from me living in a really nice suburban green leafy bit of the city, never mind those that are still living in areas of of conflict. So for me to say that it's taken a number of years to kind of unpeel those layers of feeling anaesthetized to having freedom, you know, I can't imagine what it's like for other people. But I think one thing that remains throughout and still uh, remains today is, is the power of culture, of arts, of poetry, of writing, of music. You know, that's always been such a big part of the culture in Ireland, whether north or south, and it was very much used during the Troubles um, as a way of people talking freely when perhaps they couldn't talk freely on the street. And I think that 
I really saw that evolve when the peace process came. There was more outpouring of arts on the streets, which we'd never had before. And suddenly arts took the place of um, conflict or we saw murals in the streets that would have been used to define if you're in a Protestant or Catholic area or which battle you, you were on the side of. Um, suddenly they were being replaced with cultural references like the Titanic or, you know, local actors. So it was great when you saw that happen and, and a, you know, more freedom in terms of who we were as a people beyond the conflict playing out in the city. But that's, that still in some ways still feels fragile. I mean, I, I spent a couple of days right in the same center visiting firm and there's no, there's no kind of traces of conflict that I saw anywhere. And I didn't go into the areas where the peace walls are, but it felt like a very creative, you know, it felt like a college town or something because it, as a subject, it comes up all the time, but it's not so physically present. Again, this is in the city center, not in the Western part of the city. Yes, it would totally depend on where you went in Belfast as to whether you could identify the conflict, whether historically or some of the elements that still remain. And as you say, as a tourist, you'd often just go to the city centre. You know, it's not often as a tourist, you go to areas of social deprivation or conflict. And it just so happens that the two are side by side in, in Belfast. So that isn't where tourists tend to go. However, since the peace process, there has been this tourism of the troubles. And a lot of people would come over and do some of the black taxi tours, which would take them around these areas of conflict and the areas of interface. And they would be taken to either side. And it would depend on whether you got a taxi driver um, that was from the Protestant side or the Catholic as to how much they would tell of either bit of the story. But that's part of it. You know, you just get in the taxi and you journey with these people that have had often very harrowing experiences, which they are now sharing. And I've, when I've brought people over to, to Northern Ireland, I've all often taken them on the tours. They will have asked the other side for permission to drive over for that day. Um, so there's still this kind of inbuilt communication channel that's required across those interface zones. I guess the other thing that keeps people away from the areas of conflict are some physical barriers, some of them not upfront in their division. For example, some of the infrastructure in Belfast um, curls around the city centre, which cuts off those areas of interface, which again means that even whether you're a tourist or a, a resident of Belfast, it requires quite a lot of effort to get over some of the infrastructure to get to these areas of conflict. So you can see how infrastructure is used in that way. And those are the areas where you might see the curbstones painted you know, in the Union Jack on one side or the Irish Triclore on the other. But that doesn't tend to happen in the city centre or in the suburbs. But I guess to the trained eye, you would still see some of these physical scars in the city centre where there might be some of the gate infrastructure left around the city outskirts, the ones that used to shut the city down at 5pm every night. And, you know, it was like a no man's land. Well, some of those still exist. Um, they're hardly ever shut now, um, but you can still see the post standing on the on the side of the road. What's the distance? Is it like walkable from the city centre or is it taxi ride these days? Yes, although that touches on 
the whole culture of of walking in Belfast, which again was of course affected by the troubles. You know, it is a very car culture because that's where people felt safe. Um, walking around the city was not something that was done, but it is walkable. You know, you could walk from one end to the other in 45 minutes max. And that would be, you know, the, the complete extent of the city. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. And I'm curious about the work you do today. So you teach urban studies. Do you teach about Belfast? And has your experience growing up in Belfast had an impact on what comes out in your teaching? So the first year I started teaching, I, I did teach about Belfast. It was with undergraduate architecture students. Um, these were students uh, that were studying in a London university. They were from all around the globe. So bringing them over to Belfast was quite an experience because Belfast in itself is not very ethnically diverse. So it was quite an experience for these students to come over and see this. And then when I took them to the area we were studying in West Belfast, you know, you could see that they were categorising Belfast into a a catalogue of those places that they would have also seen on the news in terms of conflict or in bombs. And that was surprising for me then, because, of course, you know, whilst I had felt the shudders of some bombs, I'd never, thank goodness, never been, you know, caught in one. and so seeing that other people were interpreting it as many other places in the world, you know, almost made me rethink my experience of Belfast. But I think the experience of growing up in a a conflict city has certainly played through my teaching. And I've realised more and more that there's a core component in what I teach that relates back to my experience growing up in Belfast. And that is one of governance. Governance was so visible in Belfast, but then there were all those invisible elements, the bits that we never knew or that could never get reported on or weren't even known to be reported on. I've continued, I guess, that fascination of governance structures in what they allow and what they don't allow, what sort of culture they create for those working within them and those subject to them. And for me, governance is all about the structure you create to enable positive relationships to make the magic happen. And I was reading something recently by an organization called Futures Centre. And they had a fantastic quote that said, every attempt to write a new human story converges upon just one mundane, heartbreaking problem. How shall we come together? How shall we work together? How shall we create together? How shall we organize? And that is at the heart of what I've taught and what I've tried to practice as a designer. It's at the heart of what being a designer is for me. You know, it's design is a process to bring people together, to enable relationships, to address a problem and to create a solution, hopefully, and to apply it. And cities need those special relationships to exist to ensure change is a good thing for the right people, whether it's between a landowner, a community, a developer, a designer, local authority. There's so many points of conflict within all those different people and their agendas in a city. And therefore, you need those relationships. You need that communication um, to build the relationships between all those different people to make a good city happen. And I very much relate that belief to what I experienced in Belfast of a breakdown in relationships, a breakdown in governance, a constant fight as to 
who owned what and what was the right way to govern it. Has it changed a lot over, you know, I mean, like just reading about it, it seems like they had to remake so many parts of the government over that period of time or, or it was the only way to get out of this was to remake whole parts of the way that the country is governed. They did. And again, that was down to a lack of trust for very valid reasons. Um, and also this, you know, the weird thing that happens when people are in power, the division that can happen between those that are trying to govern and those they're governing. And we see that play out no matter what, you, you know, what context, no matter what topic. And trying to build trust between a government and the people is always a challenge, whether it's in a, an area of high conflict or well-known conflict like Belfast or Jerusalem or just in the everyday governance of a city like London. And I've, you know, I've been so grateful to have had the experience of working in London governance, working in Sao Paulo with a charity or working with UN Habitat. It's the same issue. It's down to good relationships working together and having a common ground. But when you don't have that, the same issues exist of lack of trust, of um, lack of, you know, coherent decision-making. I guess the challenges seem to be universal, but the solutions, of course, need very finely tuned. Last time we talked, you touched on the kind of physicality of the way they even build in Belfast and how you think of the psychology of the place, many of the things you touched on, it can be represented within the built environment or, or what you build or how you build or how you create places for people to live. Is that something present in Belfast that you see they're st- they still build in such a way that doesn't let people get beyond what's happened? Uh, yes and no. I think growing up, I was used to not having certain shops. People wouldn't invest in Northern Ireland. They wouldn't open certain retail units or food and beverage units because of the risk of being bombed. And then after the peace process, we did see a a period of regeneration, um, significant regeneration, and suddenly buildings were built out of glass rather than perhaps more robust materials that could withstand a bomb going off a little bit better. But when I started to explore that change of material, it was clear that behind some of these new glass um, facades were actually concrete walls. So even though there was a peace process, there was still this tension in how you built to promote positivity while still having some sort of robust structure behind it, just in case a bomb should go off again. It was interesting to see the small steps that people were taking politically being represented also in how they were rebuilding. And this has been exported to other places. The World Trade Center here in New York has this. It, it looks like glass for the first five floors, but it's actually concrete. They put glass in front of it. This, they want people to feel like it's normal, but it's, it's not. It's, it's built on memory of what had happened on that site before. Yes, I think it's built into most security specifications of any public squares and cities these days. They may have trees surrounding public squares, but in fact, you know, they're interspersed with concrete bollards to stop any vehicles uh, trying to ram, you know, a group of people. Or you see it in 
entrances to civic buildings where you think it might be, you know, light and floaty materials, but actually behind it are hidden, you know, the required security measures. And like, is it a, is that a bad thing? I think ensuring people have an image of positivity is surely better than them not, because you just hope that that catalyzes some sort of positive connection with a place and allows people to feel safe. And then that in turn gets passed on in other positive ways, as opposed to them never seeing any sort of positive physical structures. In the last year, we've seen this, you know, everywhere, pop up all over cities, these um, physical barriers to keep people apart from one another. What are your thoughts on that and what you've experienced and how you've seen the city, London, where you are now, kind of be divided to keep people apart? So in the last 18 months, as we've dealt with the pandemic, we've seen the interjection of Bollard's highway furniture come out onto the pavements or onto the streets to allow distancing as we move around the city as much as we can. That has really reminded me of, of Belfast in many ways. Firstly, because of the language that has been used across the 18 months, we've often been told to adhere to social distancing rules when it wasn't about social distancing, it was about spatial distancing. And we've seen signs going up around the neighbourhood that, again, uh, reminds us to keep our social distance when, again, it wasn't about stopping talking to people. It was actually about giving everyone space to keep everyone safe. And I think the materials that these words have been communicated with and the way they've been interjected into our city in very harsh ways will have a, a significant psychological effect on us all because it's not, they're not very human structures. Therefore, we become even more fragile in that context. We become even more, we have more, even more feelings of, of being unsafe. And I think as we start to move towards less spatial distancing requirements, we're going to see a, an interesting play out of how we feel safe. It's been interesting even in this last uh, week when the rules on hugging have been relaxed. I've had a number of conversations with people that say they're still not sure whether they want to go into someone's personal space, whether they feel safe, whether they're going to try a hug that means you can still um, connect, but you're not facing into each other. And I think that one-to-one contact will have a ripple effect across our contact with a neighbourhood or with a piece of the city or, you know, a piece of the country. It feels so much has happened in the, in the last while that it has both a physical and a, a psychological impact that we're going to have to work our way through it. It's not going to change overnight. And I think that relating to Belfast, thinking back to the Peace Walls and for every year they're up, every t- you know, it takes 10 years psychologically to come down. We could be looking at a significant time for us all to be able to feel safe in coming together again. And related to that, I think, is also our, our mental health. Um, we've seen across London how mental health services have been inundated with people in real desperate need. And that's something that also has has continued in Belfast, but in a very long, drawn out way. 
because of the troubles. Um, you know, it has the highest mental health and suicide rate in the UK at the minute. And that is most definitely from the long drawn out impact of the troubles and the financing of social services. So I think we can learn a lot from those areas of conflict and what we might see post-COVID. How do you get people to, you know, socially bring themselves together again? You know, that, is there something to learn from that in terms of bringing people together that haven't been together for a long time? They don't feel safe to do that. I think it comes back to this need for a common ground. So people came together in Belfast through art or poetry or music. That was their common ground beyond the troubles. And perhaps we need to do the same in, in, in a post-pandemic society. We need to find those, those topics of common ground to be able to come together on um, that takes us beyond the pandemic. What do you see in the next generation that's coming up? I mean, we start with Belfast. It's going to take multiple generations to really get past what's happened. And in, in, in using your the peace war principle, I mean, if it was a 30-year conflict, and, and obviously it peaked at certain points, but, you know, it might take at least another 30 years more to get, you know, really start to heal. People that are a lot more knowledgeable regarding the current context in Belfast have said it, would it, it will take another three generations before you see a significant leap into a more trusted society. And I think that's because at the heart of a lot of the troubles are socioeconomic issues and they are very hard to fix. Those working in governance in Northern Ireland have had to put those at the forefront of any sort of change, but they're the sort of things that don't change in one generation. These aren't small problems, they're deep-rooted problems, and therefore they're going to need deep-rooted solutions working over a very long period of time. But of course, we know that is really challenging when it comes to politics and finances, because they don't tend to work with very long-term agendas. Do you think that despite the potential long-term psychological impacts, the pandemic has maybe changed people's perceptions around what's possible? So taking the example of the speed at which vaccines were produced or the dramatic drop in emissions that resulted from people travelling less. Yes, I think we've seen a lot over the last 18 months that suggests that people are ripe for change and acting upon the change that we want to see. And I think we see that in periods of conflict as well. Um, we see uprisings of change happening when situations have that very serious element to them, such as a pandemic or life-threatening situations. And I think we've seen a lot of collaboration across boundaries that people wouldn't ordinarily work across. We've seen people working beyond the red tape that usually restrains them. And I think that is all very encouraging and positive. My only hesitation and, and concern is that do we have enough within the structures that we all work within to sustain the change that we want to see? Because we will often react very quickly to a, a period of significant change but it's very hard to sustain it. And I think Belfast is a very, you know, is a prime example of that. The peace process was in 1993 and yet we're still, you know, 
slowly changing things year by year. But that's two kids' generations already gone through the so-called peace process. And yet some of the issues of deprivation are just as bad as they were in 93 and in the 80s and in the 70s. So how do we try and ensure that when change is needed and people are fired up to act on it, we have enough of the infrastructure around us to ensure we can act on it and be sustained in doing so? I don't have the answer to that question, but I really want to find it. You touched earlier on the issue around mental health, and this is something that's really come to the forefront during this time. Do you think there are things that can be done at a city level to support positive mental health? So the urban designer in me will says yes, that spatially you can enable environments that are supportive of people that are neurodiverse or that have mental health issues or physical challenges. Of course you can. How far it can go, there's only so far it can go. But I do think that if you were to get the urban designers together with the behavioural scientists and psychotherapists and the economists and the politicians and you got them round a table and got them addressing the issue of mental health, collectively you would be able to make a significant contribution to supporting those that are going to need very significant support over this next period of change post-pandemic. But it will will require us all working together because not you know, there's not one sector that's going to be able to solve the mental health situation. And I think, you know, as I said, we've seen that happening during the pandemic. We've seen people working beyond the red tape. We've seen it for the the good and the bad. I've heard of one local authority that because of the pandemic, their whole fostering system broke down because of the rules about who could go to whose home. And they ended up having to buy new property in their borough and get someone to sponsor furnishing it so that kids that were stuck in the foster care system had a home to live in. So there's an example of where, you know, things haven't worked, but then also how they have worked because suddenly someone in the local authority took, you know, took the risk of buying property because the need was so great. So I I just hope that in some way we remember the risks that we were willing to take when the need was so great. It's been really interesting to hear you talk about growing up in Belfast and your perspective on the relationship between a city and people. So as you've reflected on that and you think about what's happening in the world today, are there things that you've come to learn that you think might be relevant to how we think about the future? I think what I've come to learn is that no matter what the conflict, whether it be citizen to citizen, neighbour to neighbour, country to country, it all boils down to one person having a problem with another. And therefore, the solution has to be in our relationships together and how we communicate and how we find common ground, no matter what the differences are. And I think having seen how Belfast has had to take a very long term approach to building relationships and relationships that will continually have problems and come under great tension, focusing on 
what is needed to ensure those relationships are as positive as possible and get to a point of trust has been the only way that things can move forward. And I think the same could be said for post-pandemic cities. Our trust has almost been broken with our environment, the places that we used to hang around and the people that we used to be side by side with. We've lost our trust in that because of the risk of becoming unwell or even dying. So somehow we've got to find a way to rebuild our relationships in a trusted way. Otherwise, we are at risk of always taking that one step back. And just if we do that physically, the impact that that has psychologically shouldn't be underestimated. You're listening to City Makers, a show about the people and ideas that are shaping our cities. She's just the ultimate guest for this show because she's had such an interesting upbringing and yet she's got this perspective because of her work in architecture that she's able to sort of translate what happened back then in Belfast to what's happening today. It's so clearly impacted her and also her thoughts on how we build and what the urban environment of the future might look like all kind of comes down to that formative experience. We learned the importance of bringing people together within public space or how important that is. The overwhelming perspective I took from it was that if you use the wrong methods of keeping people away from one another, it has long-term psychological effects. And also the time factor. When COVID started, you know, many people hoped that it would be over as quickly as it began, but like the troubles, these things don't just end with an agreement or a shot in the arm. They end over a long period of time and an adjustment to uh, the new reality. And it's interesting to think about what the long-term impacts of the pandemic will be on cities because she talks about how physical barriers and segregation started to become something that was designed in to almost every part of the city. And so it's interesting to me to sort of see which way things are going to go. Are people going to continue to try and keep themselves separate or are they going to be compelled to come together in a bigger way? And actually throughout history, pandemics have been followed by periods of hedonism. So it could go either way. It could take us a long time to come out of the pandemic, especially psychologically, or everyone could just go completely nuts. I think it's that. I don't know about your cities, but London feels... Like, it's definitely going that way. Everyone's going pretty wild. City Makers is brought to you by three friends in three cities. Me, Anna Nichols in San Francisco, Matthew Quinn in New York, and Lucy Murray in London. <laughs>